The readings from John 20, starting at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's handy to have those verses in front of you that Rachel just read for us because um, we're going to be referring to them through the talk. Uh, what I want to do today, um, just because Easter is, let's face it, is probably one of the, if not the most important events in the whole Christian calendar. Christmas is cool, it's nice, it's good, we love Christmas. Uh, but Easter gives meaning to Christmas and uh, the centrality of Jesus and who he is and what he's done, we see just come really, uh, come really strongly to home uh, during Easter. So what I want to do, um, I'm not going to make any assumptions about who you are and where you've been and your background and your knowledge and understanding of, of Easter. We're going to look at reasons why you should believe in Easter, why you should believe in Jesus and what he, what he did on the cross. Um, so we're going to look at three sort of broad categories of, of reasons why you should believe, why you should be a Christian, as far as I'm concerned, uh, from the Bible. Uh, we're going to look at, number one, external reasons or an external reason. Number two, we're going to look at an internal reason why you should believe. And thirdly, finally, we're going to look at the communal reason. That is the group uh, thing, all right? And uh, we're going to look at those verses together and figure out how we get to that title. So, first of all, the first reason to believe in Easter is, uh, let's say, external reasons why you should believe. Um, Christianity, if you're new to the whole thing or if you're looking from outside in, Christianity is based on a whole bunch of truth claims, propositions, you might call them, um, certain uh, facts about history that Christians talk about, they say they are true, um, data to be tested, data to be understood, to be weighed up and to be considered. And, and why is this important right off the, off the bat? It's important because there are a lot of people out in the world who look at Christianity and they say it is just a bunch of fairy tales, much like uh, the Easter rabbit and other uh, mythical things. You know, we don't believe in them. We kind of grew up. Uh, we used to believe in those as kids. Now we're adults. We sort of, you know, don't think about that anymore. Um, it, it means nothing. It was just a, just a fairy tale. And some people say that Christianity is just like that. It's just like a fairy tale. Um, but I, I'm going to try and show you today that it is not. It is not in the same category as that. Um, it is not a bunch of make-believe, believed by some sort of weak-minded Christians. That's not what Christianity is at all. Um, it is based on what we consider to be and what the Bible teaches is, uh, is um, a bunch of historic facts and the interpretation of those facts, all right? Um, so here, uh, the idea of the Christian faith is that stuff actually happened in history. There was a time, if you could go back into the, the DeLorean, you know, back to the future, into that car, and you switch on the flux capacitor. Um, if you're born before 1981, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about, but, uh, uh, sorry, after 1981. Um, a, um, you could go back in the, in, in, in the car, and it will take you back to, or forward in future to a certain time. And the idea is if you set, um, let's say, Easter... AD 33, and you go back, you can actually go and visibly see this stuff that the Bible talks about. It actually happened, 
Um, you can see Jesus, you can meet him, you can talk to him, you can see him on the cross, you can go and see the grave that was empty. So Christianity is about real, actual things. And, and let's face it, it rises and falls on, on this. Um, it, it doesn't matter how, how good your life is or what wonderful things you can sort of believe in your heart. If, if, if Jesus wasn't a real person, if he didn't really die on the cross, if he didn't really rise from the dead, then none of this stuff makes any difference. It's just stupid. It is a fairy tale. Um, but the difference between fairy tales and Christianity is that this stuff actually happened in history. So we're not making this stuff up. Um, so the question that I want to try and get to this morning is, can we actually believe that this stuff not only happened, but does it actually make any difference for us? Is there good evidence for us to believe that these things actually happened? And this doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. This is, this is the kind of thing that anyone can look at um, irrespective of their, their, their faith and their understanding. Anyone can look at the claims, they can consider the claims of Christianity, they can look at history, they can open the textbooks, and they can consider and see for themselves. And that's why it's external, right? It's, it's, it's something that anybody can look at uh, if you're from any religion or no religion whatsoever. And my question to you this morning, just straight in there, have you, have you ever done this yourself? Have you ever taken time to, to, to read the historic documents um, that we see in the Bible, but elsewhere outside of the Bible as well, to talk about Jesus. Have you taken time to seriously consider the claims that Christianity makes? Um, if you reject Christianity, if for you it's a bunch of uh, made-up fairy tales and means nothing, then at least you've got to know what you're rejecting. Don't reject something that no one believes in. Um, make sure you know what it is you're rejecting. So we're going to look at this guy here called Thomas and, and hopefully bring some sort of uh, shape to what I've just been saying. Uh, Thomas, uh, this guy in these verses we've just been reading, is what we would more commonly describe as a skeptic. He's someone who has questions and he cannot believe until these questions are answered. And that's on one level a good thing. You know, it's a good thing. It tells us there in verse 24, if you've got your sheet in front of you, you can, you can follow along. He's one of the 12 disciples. Uh, which meant that he was part of the inner circle of, of Jesus' closest followers. He was one of 12 men who were called, handpicked by Jesus to follow him, to be with him wherever he went, to, to be trained by Jesus. He's one of these uh, guys um, who saw Jesus perform many miraculous signs, uh, many wonders. He heard the teachings of Jesus. And, and the idea is him and his sort of the other, the other apostles, the 12 in total, were, were being trained and prepared to take the message out to the, to the, to the known worlds. That's, that's why Thomas was one of those ones there. And it says in verse 24, Thomas, one of the 12, he was a twin, turns out, uh, was not with them when Jesus came. Um, in, in the passage before the one you have on your sheet, uh, we've got 10 of the apostles together um, and Jesus appeared to them. And he said, peace be with you. And he showed them his hands and his feet and he appeared. But Thomas, for one reason or another, was not there. He, he just missed out. We, it doesn't tell us what he was doing, what could be more important than seeing the resurrected Jesus. But there he was. He was away uh, doing other stuff that he considered obviously important uh, rather than hanging out with his uh, Christian mates. And, and there he was. He wasn't there. Um, and yet they said to him in verse 25, we have seen the Lord. That is, we've seen Jesus, not the dead guy. We haven't been to his grave to see the corpse. We've actually seen him. He's alive. He's been with us. He's been talking to us. We've seen him. And right there is the centrality of the claim of the Christian faith. This man that they knew, this man that they followed for three years, their closest friend, this man who died on a cross, we have seen him. 
Just imagine for a moment that initial meeting where Jesus appeared to his, uh, the 10 of them. You know, uh, Thomas wasn't there and neither was Judas, of course. Um, when he appeared to them, just imagine, first of all, it says they were in this locked room and Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Just imagine, first of all, that the shock suddenly is there. Just imagine the excitement when it dawned on them, started to hit home. What had happened? Just imagine that sense of joy, that amazement, that energy. Eyes were wide open, excited chatter. Is it really him embracing one another, laughing, crying, reliving that moment together again and again as they went on from that for days afterwards? Laughter and joy. And Thomas heard this story and they said to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Just amazing. But then look at what Thomas said. The second half of verse 25. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. That's okay for you, he said. Whatever. Great. I'm so glad you're excited. But he says, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and I place my finger in the marks of the nails and I place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Doesn't matter what you guys are telling me. Unless I see it with my own eyes and physically touch it with my own hands, I will never be convinced that Jesus rose from the grave. I want proof. I want to touch. Otherwise, I just won't have it. There's nothing for me if I can't, if I can't be convinced this stuff is true. That was his position. That's why we call him Thomas the skeptic. Sometimes he's called doubting Thomas. But that's not right. It goes deeper than that. It's more than just doubt. Unless I can see, I will not believe. Verse 26 then carries on. Eight days later, you know, same kind of next week uh, from this initial meeting with Jesus. Almost the exact same thing happened. The, the, the scene is set up almost like a repeat of what Jesus did um, a, a week earlier. This time, though, Thomas was there. And Jesus, it says there again, um, says, uh, appears among them, verse 26, peace be with you. And then he turned to Thomas. And that moment, if you could just imagine uh, what, that, what, what that must have felt like, you know, being in that room, the, the joy of seeing and knowing Jesus yourself. And then Thomas appears and Jesus again appears to them and turns and looks at Thomas. You can just imagine this sudden tension in the room, this deafening silence. What's he going to say? Thomas has just almost rebelliously said, unless I can see him and feel him, and, and, and I'm never going to believe. And there he was, looking at him face to face. Jesus, who has just been busy defeating sin and the death and the devil and bearing the punishment of sins on himself, of the world and then rising again on the third day Jesus has been doing all that busy and there he is meet, meeting this guy face to face who would not believe how was Jesus going to respond was he going to smite him was he going to call down from heaven fire and then suddenly he turns into a pillar of salt was he going to say to Thomas get out get out these other guys believed in me you didn't clear off I, I, I can create another apostle like that with my own words go did he say that to Thomas? No. Look at verse 27. And just, imagine, just see the tenderness of Jesus. His humility. Verse 27. He said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Come on. Put your hands in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now do you believe, Thomas? See the 
the tenderness, the humility of Jesus. We, we're reading that at the start of our service. You know, he was like a servant. He, he emptied himself. He, he became like one of us and, and then he ascended and then he's great and wonderful. But see, Jesus, even though he has ascended, even though he is Lord, even though he has beaten sin and death and the devil, he is still humble. He's still tender towards his people. He's tender towards skeptics who just will not believe unless they get proof. Look at his tenderness and love and just see how Jesus responds to his doubt and his questions. He doesn't say be gone. He invites him. Come and have a look. If this is real, yeah, you can, you can believe me. You can, you can come and see. Take a look. Peer in for yourself. I want you, Thomas, to be completely convinced that it is me and no one else. I'm not a ghost. I'm not some guy who looks like Jesus. I'm him. Come, come on. I love that. And you see that invitation goes out across history. It doesn't just stop with the apostles and with this interaction with Thomas. Jesus continues generation upon generation to come uh, and, and say to everybody in the world who has questions, everybody who is inquiring about him, everyone who is skeptical about him, come, come and have a look at me. Come and take me on. Come and examine what I've done. He doesn't say to you if you've got questions about the faith or if you're uncertain or if you're a doubter or whatever. He doesn't say to you, go, be gone. I, I haven't got time for people like you. I just want those who are on fire for me. The rest of you can just go to hell. He doesn't say that at all. He says just humbly and lovingly and tenderly to you. If you are doubting, if you don't know Jesus, come to me. Have a look. I can take it. And Jesus isn't going to crumble to pieces if you start looking at him. Come to me honestly, openly, and I'll be there for you. So how does that manifest today? How does that, how does that work for us today in, in our own lives, in our own situation? Well, today, of course, we don't have the physical Jesus Christ stood here um, next to me. If he did, I, would be, uh, I wouldn't be standing myself, no doubt. But uh, we don't have the physical Christ among us. We can't look at him with our own eyes. We can't uh, do, you know, put our, our, our hands into his side just like Thomas was, was, was offered there. But we do have their eyewitness statements. For a start, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. We've got the, 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 the four accounts of Jesus' words and his ministry and his, his life and his death and his resurrection. We, we can look at them. We can examine them. And not just that, we've got the, the other bits in the New Testament, the sort of the thoughts around those historic acts. We can, we can read them too. And there are other parts um, of, of historical texts as well that are not Christian, that are not biblical, that we can look at from the outside. Other historians in that day and age that speak to this event. We can read them too. And it's on the basis of these eyewitness accounts and these reports of the day, both from the Bible and from sort of secular sources at that time, we realize as Christians that, 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 we, that, that we just take them at face value and we trust this stuff is, is true and it is right. And it just adds up that Jesus really did say these things. He really did go to the cross. He really did rise from the grave. And it wasn't just the 12 apostles that, that, that saw him with their own eyes. Uh, in fact, the scriptures that I read earlier said that it was a woman called Mary, a bunch of, uh, a couple of women actually, two, two called Mary, another woman called Salome, and uh, they were the ones who were the first ones to lay eyes on, on, on Jesus. It was Mary in the garden, mistook him for the gardener. If you were making this stuff up, you would never in a million years have said that it was, it was a few women that were the first to see Jesus. In that day and age, in that culture, uh, a woman's testimony would not have the same weight in court as a man's testimony. That's just the way it was. You would, if you were making that up, you would never put 
women to be the first to discover the empty grave. And the fact that they did, the fact that they were just open and saying, hey, this is actually what happened, goes to show that, that, that it's credible. It wasn't just Mary, it wasn't that group of women, it wasn't the 12 apostles, it was the apostle Paul. And at one point, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And the apostle Paul says, There's some, many of them are still alive. So, so the, the idea was, if you were reading some of the early letters and the early thoughts about Christianity, you could go and speak to people who saw the resurrected Lord Jesus. It wasn't just a, a bunch of people hallucinating in a room. Over 500 people at one time saw Jesus alive. And it's on the basis of that that we have a reason to believe that Easter is true. Look down at verse 29. Jesus said to him, as to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me with your eyes? He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You see, Jesus expected subsequent generations of people to look into the facts, to consider it with an open mind and an open heart if necessary, to consider it and to put their faith and trust in Jesus. And he says, blessed are those who believe in me and yet haven't seen me with their own physical eyes. Blessed here, by the way, doesn't just mean happy, you feel good about yourself, although you may do. Blessed means those people have the favor of God upon them, the delight of God upon those who believe in Jesus through looking at the facts and believing these eyewitness testimonies. And so at the end of this little section, let me ask you, have you honestly had a look at the claims of Jesus Christ? Have you honestly opened your heart, your mind? Have you put yourself behind the job of examination? If you haven't, or if you're just starting out on that journey, we just want to say that we at Foundation Church are the kind of church um, that welcomes questions. We welcome doubters. We welcome skeptics. We say around here that we are gospel-centered, which means that we form ourselves and shape ourselves around the claims of Jesus, and we enjoy them, and we sing them, and we talk about them, and work out what they mean for us. And so if you are on a journey, if you are looking at those claims, we would love you to come and join with us, to walk with us um, as we investigate together as a church. So that's the, inter the external reason to believe in Easter. If you've got a good memory, you'll remember there's two more, internal and communal. So what are the internal reasons to believe in Easter? We've got the facts, we've got history and all that stuff. It's all out there, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. We've got reasons to believe. There's a story for us to understand about Jesus, but that's only the first step because the next step happens when you realize that you a part of that story. It goes from external truths that you can sort of understand in your mind and it becomes internal. It goes from objective to subjective. It goes from your head and it sinks down into your heart. It goes from thinking, yes, these things are true. They have the ring of authenticity. I think they're right. It goes from that to saying, but it's true for me. This comes home for us. And that's why we go from internal, external reasons to internal reasons. Let's Go back to, to, to the text and figure out where we get that from. Thomas, again, look, he acknowledges the facts. He, he understands, finally, when he, he sees the risen Lord Jesus with his own eyes, he, he, he lays his hands on him. Doesn't even say that he actually touched him, although he may have done. But possibly the sight was just enough to melt Thomas's heart. He acknowledges the facts. He knows, finally, that Jesus really has risen from the grave. But then see his response in verse 28. He gets the facts, but then he says this my Lord and my God. That's his response. Not just Lord and God, because that's like an external thing. Yes, Jesus is Lord. Yes, he's God. My Lord, my God. What's he saying? He's saying that this man who I didn't believe a few moments ago, he is my Lord. He is over me. He is my commander. 
He is greater than me. I bow myself before him. I acknowledge him. I confess him. I praise his name. I am amazed by him. That's what it means when he says, my Lord and my God. And finally, Thomas can join his friends in their joy at knowing that Jesus is alive. No longer is he a skeptic. He is a true believer in every sense of the word. It's true. It's finally true. He really has done it. And the joy in that room would have just erupted again, no doubt. You see, folks, there is a a deeper level of belief that goes on in all of us and in Thomas that goes below just accepting the facts and the history and all that. That's important. That's where we start. That's what Christianity is built on, but it doesn't stop there. Because listen to this, and this is important if you've been to church and if you've been brought up in the church especially, it's important that you understand this. It is possible to accept the facts about Jesus without actually being a Christian. You can accept the facts of the Christian faith without being a Christian because there is another step that you have to go on. When you, when you read uh, the Gospels, you, you see that there are a lot of people in Jesus' day, not just in the Gospels, but the Bible in general, who saw amazing works of God. They saw miracles being performed. They saw healings being done by Jesus at the mention of a word. Somebody would be raised or cleared or, or, of leprosy or whatever it was. They even saw, some of them saw Jesus raise a guy from the dead who was in the grave for three days called Lazarus. And yet... There are plenty of people in the gospel accounts who saw all this stuff. They saw the evidence. They saw the facts. And yet they just did not believe. They didn't take it into their hearts. They were not inwardly changed. And that's why I'm saying there is an internal uh, reason to believe as well as an external reason to believe. You see, there's something else that happens beneath the surface of our external assessment. There's the level of the mind, but then the level of what we would describe as the desires or the emotions or, or, or your gut feeling or the Bible describes it as the heart. There's the mind and then there's the heart, which is the most basic part of you. The deepest parts of you as a person. Goes beyond knowledge. Here's an example, just to try and uh, get to what I'm, what I'm saying about. We often do things as people uh, that we know we shouldn't do. We know it's wrong and yet we do them anyway. Knowledge and practice are, are two different things. For example, we know it's wrong to go above 70 miles an hour on a motorway, right? Obvious, everybody knows that. But we still do it anyway. You see, we know the facts and yet we behave in a very different way to the facts. We know it's wrong, we do it anyway. Jesus met a lot of people in his day who saw the facts but they were driven by something deeper. They did something different anyway. They responded to him differently. They resisted him when they should have given themselves to him. Why is that? Why do you think it is that Jesus, even though he did miracles, he spoke amazing words, he actually died on a cross and was raised on the Why is it that people still don't believe in him even though they may agree with those things? And here it is. Here's why I think it is anyway. Jesus was driven by conviction, huge conviction. Jesus drew clear lines where other people wished they were blurry. Jesus, for example, called out hypocrisy from religious people. People who knew all the facts and knew the Bibles and knew the right thing, but yet in their hearts, their hearts were full of hatred and bigotry instead of love and justice and mercy. 
And Jesus called them out. And they didn't, they didn't like it because he drew solid lines instead of blurry lines. And he does the same for us today in many ways. We might examine the facts. We might conclude in general that they're good, that they're sound, they're right. But we don't go the next stage. We don't, we don't say with Thomas, my Lord and my God, command me. And the reason why we don't go to the next stage is because we don't like where it's heading. We don't like the fact that Jesus is my Lord and my God. He wants to be those things. We're maybe even okay with saying that he's Lord and he's God and we can sing these songs that say those things, but not he's my Lord. He's my God because when I say that and when I admit that, then that means that he's in charge and not me and I've got to give my life to him and I, I don't want to. The Bible's pretty clear about this. There is some, something fundamentally wrong at the core of every single person who ever lived except Jesus. See, when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, we are basically, basically, out for ourselves. We like to be the captain of our own ship, the lords of our own destiny. There was a movie that I, I, I saw a few years ago called About a Boy, um, and Hugh Grant plays the main character of Will. And Will is this rich boy. Um, he's never done a day's work in his life. He got, got money from um, a, a member of his family. And, 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 and Will... Has, has it all by modern standards. He's got all the stuff in his house. He lives his life as he wants. And let me just give you uh, a quote from, from the movie. This is Will speaking. He says, um, in my opinion, all men are islands. You know, that, you know that old phrase, no man's an island? Well, he's saying here, in my opinion, all men are islands. Everybody's an island. And what's more, now is the time to be one, says Will. This is an island age. See, 100 years ago, you had to depend on other people. Back then, no one had TVs or CDs or DVDs or videos or internet or home espresso makers. In fact, they didn't have anything cool back then. Whereas now, you see, you can make for yourself a little island paradise with the right supplies and the right attitude. You can be a sun-drenched tropical magnet. And I like to think that perhaps I am that kind of island. I like to think I'm pretty cool. I like to think I'm Ibiza. That's Will. He wants to be the star of his own show. He wants to be an island all of his own. And, 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 and that sort of highlights something of, of our own modern understanding of what it is to be successful. It's to just be completely detached and on our own. But the problem is, we see what it means that Jesus is Lord and that he is God. And yet we don't want it to be true. We want to be the island. We want to be Ibiza, where we get to say what's in charge, not someone else. We're okay with God being, or Jesus being uh, in control of the universe, but we don't like him being in control of me. We want to have the final say in our lives, not him. We want to get to say what's best for us, not him. And yet Jesus says, no, no, no. If you get me and you understand what I've done for you, I am Lord and I am God. And therefore you are not. Just to be clear, folks, it is not that Jesus is bad for us, like taking broccoli or vitamins, just one of those things we have to do, we know it's good somewhere, but oh man, it tastes awful. Jesus is not like that. He doesn't get it wrong. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus is spot on when he knows about how you should live your life. 
because Jesus knows how to give you life and joy and peace in levels and depths that you have never dreamed possible on your own. Jesus can do that. Jesus can turn all of your darkness into light. You can't do that. Jesus can bring you satisfaction and hope for the future like you have never experienced. You can't do that. Your island mentality, doesn't matter how great your island is, you can never do that. That's why Jesus wants to be Lord. See, the movie about a boy goes on to show that this island life of will, the main character, is incredibly lonely. It actually goes on to show that he is a really nasty person. He doesn't care about anyone except himself. Anybody else that comes into his life is just trash, getting in the way of his island life. But as the movie goes on, Will starts to realize the em emptiness of his own heart. He starts to realize that he is all for himself. And when he starts to open up to other people in his life, then he starts to discover what life is really all about. You see, some people don't want the facts to be true. They will just reject and reject and reject and reject. It doesn't matter what evidence you bring to them, what books they read, they will always find a way not to believe. Doesn't mean it's not true, it just means they don't want it to be true. We will not believe, just like Thomas, unless I can, I will not believe. So my question to you uh, this morning, if you do not have faith in Jesus, let me ask you, why do you not have faith in Jesus? Is it because you have earnestly investigated and, and, and are yet to be convinced? Or is there a deeper reason why you don't have faith in Jesus? Is it because you don't want it to be true? And so either you don't take the time to look into it, or alternatively you put the bar so incredibly high that you will never be satisfied, and therefore you'll never have to give your life to Jesus. But let me say this to you here, if you fall into one or other of those categories. If you ask Jesus, he will show you himself. If you really want to know Jesus, he can be found. He will come to you. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it into my side. He sends his spirit to work these external truths into our hearts and minds and starts a fire. That's what he'll do if you want to know him. And so do you want that? It's my question. Because it's yours if you ask. If you really want it, it's yours. That's why we say here at, Thri at Foundation Church, we are a spirit-empowered church because we believe that it is the spirit that makes all this come alive. External reasons, the facts, the truths, the history. Internal reasons, our heart, do we want Jesus to be Lord? The third and final reason to believe in Easter is a communal reason. This is maybe a bit of a stretch, but we'll go for it anyway. I think, it's, I think it's right. Communal reason. See, faith, Christian faith is not isolated or individualistic. It's individual. It's something you have to come to in your own time and your own conclusions. You have to put your own faith in Jesus. That's what Christianity is about. But it doesn't mean you stay on your own. It's not individualistic in that sense. See, when you come to faith in Christ, when you trust him, then you, spiritually speaking, immediately and instantly join a huge world, worldwide group of believers united by the same truth. And that 
group of believers is called the church. And that's why we gather, one of the reasons why we gather together every Sunday is we come together and say, there are so many things that are different about us on a sort of social you know, a level, uh, we're different countries, we maybe speak different languages, we, we know we different, different jobs, different training, different backgrounds, different experiences, all that. But the one thing that unites us and joins us together is that we are in agreement that Jesus is alive. That's why we believe together. You see, there's a communal reason to believe. It's not just you and your faith on your own in a desert. It's you on your faith with a great big body called the church. Hundreds of thousands and millions of people right now, here and now, are confessing and praising and worshipping and enjoying Jesus. That's why, this is what Jesus knows about. This is what he prays for. Um, in, in, in the famous section in John 17, Jesus is praying a prayer. He's praying out loud for the benefit of everybody. John, who wrote this, you know, is probably taking mental notes, if not real notes. And he's, he's listening to Jesus pray. He's praying to his father. And this is what Jesus said. He's saying, he's just been praying for the apostles, right? The 12 apostles. And then he goes on to say, Father, I, I, I'm not only asking for these 12 apostles, but for also, also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, they also may be in us so that the world will believe that you have sent me. It's a bit of a mouthful. What's he saying? Jesus is praying for subsequent generations of people who will look at the facts, who will be convicted by them, who will open their hearts, say, Jesus, you're my Lord, you're my God. And Jesus wants those people, those subsequent generations to be united to be together so that the world may look at them, look at that group of believers called the church and know that you have sent me. So the idea is that someone who's not a Christian, not from the faith, not from the church, can look at a group of Christians together in a church and look and there's something powerful, there's something compelling about that community that ultimately will, will, will show that God sent his son Jesus to the world when they look at the people. Isn't that crazy? That's what our church should look like. That's what God is growing here. And that is one of the things that, that, that we want people to see from the outside. Jesus in us. There's something about how we interact with one another as we gather on Sundays and as we disperse throughout the week and meet in each other's homes and interact informally and all that stuff. There's something about that that will point people to Jesus if we get it right. Because the church, the Bible describes it as a family. It's a body of different parts coming together with great power and function. It's a building being built up together, a glorious cathedral to the glory of God. That's what the church is all about. And that is how Jesus continues to present and commend himself to the world right now. It's through us. It's through this. It's through the church. Because here in the church, Foundation Church and Thriving Life and many more like it, the church is a place where we care for one another. We go above and beyond what the world can do. We care for one another deeply, sacrificially. The church is a place that we live our lives together in a way that is deeper and more uh, substantial than anything else out there. The church is the place where we give one to one another our gifts, we give our resources, we, we love and serve, we give up our our, 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 our rights in order for other people to grow and learn and thrive. The church is a place 
which is an alternate existence. It is radically different from the world out there. And so that's why the third reason is the communal reason. People should look at our church and many like it and say, yes, there is something here about the way that these people are. I want to know more. And we say, yeah, come. We're all gospel-centered, spirit-empowered. Come and learn about Jesus. Come and meet him. Come and experience him as we gather. So when you come to Jesus by trusting in him, these historic facts take fire in your heart. When that happens, you join a family. You enter into a family, and that's called the church. You see, according to Jesus elsewhere in the scriptures, your connection to fellow believers within your church is actually deeper than any other connection that you will have in this world. It's deeper than blood. It's deeper than your relationship with your family. Connection with other believers is actually deeper than the tribe that you come from. It's deeper than the country that you live in. And that's what we are growing here by the, the grace of God and the help of the Holy Spirit. We are growing here at Foundation Church. That's why we say, thirdly, we are a church on mission. We are a community that is with a purpose. We do something. And that is to reflect Jesus to the world. That's what we do. So that's why the third reason, therefore, is communal. Because you see the truth at work. This is what the truth looks like. So we would love you to join us. We would love you to come and sign up to the family. To come and take your part, no matter where you are. If you're inside the faith, outside the faith, on a journey. In, in any direction, we'll take you. If you're a seeker, if you're a skeptic, if you're convinced and committed, if you're living out your faith, if you don't know what faith is and how to even start, we would love to have you on board. Not because we have all the answers necessarily, but we know the person who rose from the grave, who is life and life eternal, and we can certainly point you in his direction. So external reasons, internal reasons, communal reasons to believe this Easter. Will you stand with me just now as we pray? We're going to come and respond to this, this teaching.